0: hi everyone welcome to the power hungry podcast i'm robert bryce on this podcast we talk about energy power innovation and politics and i'm pleased to welcome back for the second time second time that's right peter zion he is a uh globalist and author um and uh very popular youtube presence uh he's the author of four books peter welcome back to the power hungry podcast thank you much uh, you may remember, I know you do a lot of engagements, uh, a lot of podcasts, but pod, uh, but guests on this podcast introduce themselves. So I've given a very brief introduction for you. Uh, imagine you've arrived somewhere, you don't know anyone, you have 60 seconds, no more than 60 seconds to
1: introduce yourself. Oh, I yourself. don't need 60 seconds. Okay, I help so, people figure out what's going to happen in the world and how it's going to impact them. That's my life these days.
0: Okay, well, that's uh, fair enough. And you're based in Morrison, Colorado, if I remember. That's right. And you used to be here in Austin, Texas with Stratford. It's
1: been a while, but yes, five years ago.
0: Gotcha. Okay, good. Well, let's jump right in because uh, you were last on the podcast. It was December of 2022. And in our last conversation, you were very bullish on the U.S. I go back and forth. I'm all day bullish on the U.S., but you said the American system will thrive. And when I look at the presidential election, I look at Trump and Biden, and I like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> We have a country of 330 million people. We only can choose between these two doddering old fools and uh, yeah, doddering old fools. I got I got criticized. I gave a speech recently, Oh, You can't call them. No, they're doddering old fools. Are you still that's
1: being fairly polite, actually?
0: Yeah. Doddering and fools. Yes. But so the American system will thrive. You said that. And now a while ago, you still believe that?
1: Well, let's put politics to the side because that's that's more than just a minor detail. It is more uh, than a minor detail. <laughs> this yes. is not the first time we've had political craziness in the country. And we've come through it just fine before. I'm not worried about it this time either, as uncomfortable as it is. Uh, but the core issues, uh, having enough young people to generate another generation, having the consumption and the workforce that comes from that, uh, having a system that's not dependent upon international trade in an era of deglobalization, uh, and having a military that can keep all of your foes more than arms lengths away everything the united states needs to succeed it has it's a massive exporter of not just food but now energy it's the controller of the only mine that provides the silicon that allows for semiconductors to be made and it then designs almost all of the semiconductors as well i don't mean to suggest there aren't gaps in the system and as we see more reshoring, it will generate a lot of inflation, but that's inflation from a growth story. That's building out the supply chains we need for the next 50 years. These are good problems.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because you mentioned young people and I've got, I have three children. My wife, Lauren, and I have three grown children, We're super proud of all of them. But I was talking to a couple of them this morning, Mary and Jacob, and talking about where they are today. And let's talk mm-hmm. about inflation because housing prices for them, I mean, if I'm, I, I am like you. I'm all day bullish on the U.S. We we still now how many 250 some odd years after the uh, the the Constitution, we're still litigating the Constitution. How durable the document is, right? And how the Bill of Rights. We're still talking about these things. We we use this in our daily conversation. The Fifth Amendment, First Amendment, you know, Second Amendment, all these things. We're still fighting about, but still makes it this ama- amazing system work. But aren't well? How do you vo- view the opportunities? Let me put it in the form of this way: in a question. Younger people today, there, particularly in terms of housing, inflation in the housing market is—is is that, it's a concern for me as a father. Is it a concern for you as for the opportunity for this next generation, the post baby boomer generation, the affordability for them? Because I know what you're saying about inflation and growth, but there's a there's a flip side to that.
1: Well, let's start with the the basic issue that for. Each decade for the last seven, people have been concerned that this was the last decade of the American experiment and the new generation coming in had it so much worse than the people that came before. There's nothing. Oh, but this new time, but this there. time it's true. This time it's different. <laughs> no
0: coming Peter. Now this time. No, really. Because <laughs> yeah. they're this, my this, kids. It... They're my kids this time. <laughs> the specific
1: issues are different every decade. When I was entering the workforce in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was all about globalizing or globalization and creating competition on a global basis. And all of a sudden, we had to compete in a way we didn't have to before. And it sucked. It was awful. And we got through it. This issue, there's two things playing out specifically for housing. Number one, a lot of the home builders are still, still a little bit shell-shocked from the subprime crisis. And so we haven't seen the expansion in the housing stock that we normally would have on a year by year basis. And we probably have a shortage of housing units in the country of about four to five million. Now, Mm -hmm. remember, if you go back to 2007, we had an excess of four to five million. So we've now compensated in the other direction. And so we are now seeing strong housing starts again, which is starting to chip into this problem but it is a multi-year process to get under out from under that sort of backlog so this is not something that's going to get fixed in the next year or two this is a five-year 10-year program this is how long it takes to move a country with a housing stock of over 100 million units Uh, second We are coming off of the most capital-rich period in history. Most capital generation is put together by people who are age 55 to 65, whose kids have moved out, their expenses have gone down, and they're saving for retirement. That 10-year block for the last 15 years has all been baby boomers. And what we've seen is about a year and a half ago, the majority of them had reached mass retirement. So we're in this weird transition moment that is historically atypical, in capital markets going from this massive generation of capital, which has allowed anyone who could control the capital to bid up the price of everything. It's very Chinese. It's very Japanese. That's one of the reasons why we've had this tear in the stock market. That's one of the reasons why we actually had a relatively robust economy even during COVID, and one of the reasons why Obama, Trump, and Biden have been able to issue record amounts of uh, debt at the federal level without crashing the overall system. Just the capital has been there. Right. Now, it's changing form. It's going from stocks and bonds into things like T-bills. Now, that means that we're seeing capital costs finally rising. And if you are in your 20s and you're trying to enter the housing market and there's a housing shortage at the same time that capital costs are going up, you're crunched in the middle and there's no easy fix.
0: That's a problem. Yeah. Now,
1: this too will pass. By the time the baby boomers have been all retired in a few years, and by the time the millennials enter their mid-50s, we will see capital costs come down again. We'll also have a lot of capital flight from the wider world coming in that will keep push capital costs down again. But that's 10 years off. So in the meantime, we've got 10 years of insufficient housing and higher capital costs. And of course, that's going to hurt if you're a first-time home buyer. This was always going to happen. And... It is coincidental based on the demographics. It is not structural, and we will get through this. It's just going to hurt for a little bit.
0: So are you making a call then on interest rates there as well then, because what you're, you're talking about capital flows, so necessarily that means how the Fed is going to fix interest rates. So you're you're projecting a longer period then, if I'm hearing you right, of higher interest rates because of this shift in capital, the large amounts of capital overall. Am I hearing you correctly?
1: I prefer to use the more generic term of capital costs, which includes interest rates and the 10-year and T-bills and credit cards and bank loans and the IMF and all of it, because it's it's in the aggregate that we're seeing the shift. Uh, once you get down to more specific uh, instruments making that sort of prediction is a lot more squirrely I am definitely a believer in the higher for longer the United States needs to rebuild a lot of industrial plant in a time of less capital and less labor that can't help but generate higher capital costs and higher interest rates and then the Federal Reserve also has its eye on the horizon and is watching something that most Americans are just not aware of we think of demographics to the degree we think about it, and them as baby boomers retiring and then maybe the millennials coming up in 10, 15 years. And There's nothing right. wrong with that. But on a broader scale, the rest of the rich world has a baby boomer cadre just like us, but their baby boomers never had kids. So there aren't German or Italian or Korean or Chinese millennials, uh, which means that as they're going through the same mass retirement of the boomers as we are and experiencing the same increase in capital costs that we are, there's no generation coming up from below that will have consumption and capital generation in the future right so from the federal reserve's point of view there are only three economies of size anymore that are normal us mexico india and so if they get interest rate policy wrong and cut too soon then they risk us falling into a japanese style trap of deflation that we don't recover from for 30 years And so they're much more willing to keep rates higher for longer so that they have more dry powder when the next recession finally hits. Uh, Because they know if they get this wrong, it's a generation of lost growth, not a decade of high housing prices.
0: It's interesting. Well, I'm glad you mentioned those four countries because you were just on JP Morgan podcast, I think it was Talks of the Trade, and I was
1: looking at that. And I had so much coffee that morning. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you maybe had a little caffeine this morning, too. Maybe I'm wrong, but... uh well, you've always seemed fully caffeinated, by the way. I've seen you speak.
1: Um, it's an effort, but yes.
0: <laughs> but you talked about, uh, I'm, I'm quoting you pretty much directly here, you're talking about deglobalization, in which I want to get to. And But on this, uh, the Talks of the Trade podcast, you said, this is the decade we're running out of working-aged adults. And you said the problem is most acute in Korea, China, Italy, and Germany. Um, the first question I have uh, here is, will the uh, first point I want to bring up is two of those countries are in Europe. And I've been watching the European situation recently. I just made a slide of a presentation coming up in Washington in a couple of days. Um, the amount of nat- natural gas from Russia into, U- into the EU was at 47 percent in 2019. To uh, At the end of 2023, it was 13 percent. Here's my question. Is Germany going to drag? Well, we'll include Italy in that. Is Germany going to drag Europe down with it?
1: Italy never restructured their debt or changed their fiscal policies in the 1990s when they joined the EU. So they joined the EU with a massive debt that they will now never recover from because they no, no longer have enough young people to generate the next generation of growth. So um, Italy has been a drag on the European system for 25 years, and it's never going to improve. Uh, this is just how it is.
0: Because be their demographic, Italy. their demographics suck too, right? They're exactly. They now
1: have more people in their 70s than their 60s and their 50s and their 40s, and so on. Uh, and so they're they can't recover, they can't grow out of their debt, and they can't cut their debt spending because it, they have to support it at an aged population. So we're just looking for fiscal and, and uh, monetary collapse in the case of Italy. I can't tell you exactly when that's going to happen. I can tell you it's inevitable, and I can tell you it's in less than a decade. Uh, beyond that, there's too many moving parts. Uh, Germany's demographics are not quite as bad as... Um, Italy's, but that's like saying the Lusitania didn't sink quite as fast as the Titanic. It's still deeply terminal and they still have less than a decade left, but they're in a much better fiscal position because they've seen this coming and have at least taken some steps to insul- insulate themselves a little bit. Um, but you're right. They don't just face the demographic issue. They face the energy issue that goes with it. Right. And there is not enough natural gas within easy reach of the European continent to supply everyone. And the North Sea first and foremost goes to Norway and Sweden and the United Kingdom and secondly to the Netherlands and only third to places like Germany. Uh, the Germans pathologically opposed building new natural gas infrastructure for the last 20 years unless it went to Russia. And right. Now that is all wasted uh, so even poland is ahead of the line for north sea gas uh, as for stuff coming out of north africa obviously italy france and spain get first dibs there so the only way
0: via either pipeline from Algeria or LNG, then out of Algeria or out of uh, Nigeria, maybe then
1: there's also a pipeline out of uh, Libya, Um, nothing out of Nigeria yet. There is LNG that does come from there, but the idea of a trans Saharan pipeline has always been a pipe dream. That's not going to happen unless something very, very strange happens in European African relations. But you know, it's a weird year right now, who knows, (laughs) Uh, but not imminently anyway. Um, it's not just about electricity, and the electricity situation in Germany is dire.
0: Right. Uh,
1: it's also because the natural gas the Germans brought in was used to form the basis of their entire petrochemical system. And that's just stopped. You actually yeah. have German petrochemical companies dismantling their city sized facilities and moving them to other countries where there's more uh, access to natural gas, places like Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, their hope hope is that they can do that fast enough and then ship the intermediate materials back to Germany to save their manufacturing model. don't think it's going to work. They'd have to work a lot faster than they did in World War II. And at the end of the day, there aren't enough workers to maintain the factories more than a few more years. And there's no consumers in Germany for the finished products. So it has to go out anyway. So everything that's going on in the world right now, the Ukraine war, deglobalization, the demographic crash, it all hits Germany hard. Um yeah, I, I,
0: it's interesting to see that I, well i the iea just put out a report i put it on my Substack a couple of days ago electricity industrial electricity demand in germany went down 13 percent last year
1: they I mean, were very lucky that's all it was
0: just incredible drop and the and the and the they also published a, a table showing the drop in chemical production and you know every, virtually everything else there were slight gains in a couple of things i think automobile in terms of industrial electricity demand but You know electricity is a i I write a lot about electricity pay attention to uh, to it a great deal that's just a proxy for economic output in in large part right it's not perfect but pretty close so but i'll ask that question again because i you made a lot of good points there so does germany drag the rest of europe down because it's the economic engine of europe
1: well, that's the thing. If the, if the economic engine dies, there isn't anything left. It's not that you've got Germany and the rest of Europe. You've got Germany at the heart of Europe. And the wow, manufacturing that's... supply chain system that the Germans control and dominate also involves the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria, Switzerland, Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania. And without the Germans, none of it works. Right. So we're looking at the end of the entire economic model that has allowed the European Union to function to this point. The exception to that, or two exceptions, number one is Britain, which if they can figure out Brexit, maybe they can find a better future, and France, which never really integrated its own economy into the European norm because they saw it as a political project. Uh, That doesn't mean that France doesn't have its own problems, but they're different from what's facing the Germans.
0: Well, and they have they have their nuclear plants, which assures them of fairly low cost electricity vis a vis the rest of the uh, rest of Europe.
1: I wouldn't uh, call it low cost, but I would call it more reliable.
0: Okay, fair enough. Good. Well, they're not relying on imports of gas to make make everything work. And the Germans what are the Germans doing? They're building gas fired power plants. Oh, and restarting their lignite plants. But
1: yeah, well, know, the lignite plants is is basically the future of electricity in Germany. So their commitment to low carbon fuels like natural gas and wind and solar in a country that is neither windy nor sunny means that their carbon emissions are skyrocketing because all they've got left is lignite.
0: So the energy vendor is dead then?
1: Uh, the Energiewende was never a particularly great idea, in my opinion, because you know anyone who <laughs> well, has been to Germany knows you don't need sunblock. I mean, let's right. be honest here. Yeah, right. uh, so having forests of solar panels uh, in a country that's not sunny was always stupid. Uh, and the Germans have substantially increased their carbon footprint as part of the Energiewende because the technologies are just not appropriate for them. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe, and I'm being generous here, 15%. Of their electricity can be met by wind from the north sea and and that's about it everything else the solar panels they've put up in the vicinity of dortmund and berlin and the rest they will never pay down the carbon costs that it took to build and install those things from the electricity they generate in the back end it's just not enough
0: well, let me follow up on that because, well, then why what, talk about the politics of Germany? Is this because of the part the the political power of the Green Party? Because exactly, I look it's, at Germany and I think, who is what is wrong with these people? I mean, there's there it's a country run by engineers. We're run by lawyers, right? But it's a country where the technocrats have a strong hold on the political system, and yet they went down this insane policy. I mean, why? Why? I guess is it the Green Party, and why didn't they see this coming?
1: I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but the the German Green Party is one of the greatest successes of Russian intelligence of the last 75 years. Uh, Greenpeace, to a certain degree, got Russian sponsorship in the early days, specifically in Germany, in order to push the Germans in an economic direction that Moscow would perceived as being in their best interests, And part of that was this obsession that nuclear power is bad and natural gas from Russia is good. And that has been the underlying issue in German politics for over 40 years. Uh, and we've had a so couple of governments- So let me just understand. So
0: you're saying the Green Party has just been a stalking horse for the KGB for all I mean, time. That's,
1: it's, an, it's an oversimplification, but the Germans, I'm sorry, the Russians have been done a, doing everything they can to encourage every argument that the Greens have ever- ever made, no matter how silly they happen to be, and they were the genesis of some of them. And before you get too down on the Germans for that, it's been very successful in the United States as well. Uh, first on energy issues and affecting the left, and now on the impeachment issues affecting the right. Um, we're not all as smart as we would like to think.
0: So, you're, uh, so I want to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying here. You're saying the Russians are impacting the left in the US.
1: Uh, left and the right. So you're familiar with Michael Moore and all of his Gasland stuff. Yeah. yeah Gasprom sure. was a part sponsor of that film more recently. No, my, that the, was
0: uh Josh Fox. That was not Michael Moore. Uh, Gasland was uh, Josh Fox, the New York
1: guy. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure of that because I've followed, I, I know Michael, I've followed Michael Moore's work. I don't, I don't think, Gasland was Josh Fox's movie, his, docu- okay, his, docu- his f- anyway. fictional documentary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fictional
1: documentary. Great way to phrase that. Uh, but the same thing is happening on the right now. Uh, we've just had the, uh, the big bombshell in the last few days that the Republicans' big store of impeachment information against Biden was actually provided by a Russian agent, which just makes them look silly. Um, it's not an ideology thing. The Russians will just Do whatever they can in order to break economies and turn countries against one another Uh, they've been doing this for a very long time they're not new to the game and even with the soviet fall they haven't forgotten all the tricks of the trade
0: you know, it's interesting you bring that because the other thing that comes to mind when you talk about that is the um, issue of uh, the Russians funding anti fracking campaigns in Europe. And this has been, you know, yeah, numerous, uh, numerous uh, articles have been written about this to talk about that very, you know, it's been very effective. I mean, give them credit. And, you know, what do you do with your foes? Well, you try and mess them up, right? You destabilize them however you can. And it's fairly low cost. I mean, too, and from a pure operations standpoint, much easier, much more efficient to mess with their politics than trying to, you know, confront them more directly. Right. I mean, this is just an ordinary kind of statecraft. Is that the name? Right. Yeah, it's term
1: not a new playbook. The Russians have been doing this across the world for quite some time. They've just been more successful at it with the West than in most countries because they're more open societies.
0: So let's talk about deglobalization and it's one issue we talked about last time um but you also in this recent piece on JP and JP Morgan on the podcast you talked about uh uh the deglobalization what 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 areas of the global economy are mo- are going to be the first order ones that are affected by deglobalization right is it, uh, it going to be semiconductors what it, what it, you know name the name the products name the things that are going to be the first to be reshored here in the US
1: Well, let let me kind of point something out here. Back in the 40s and 50s, when the globalization process started, it it worked because the US Navy put itself at the service of the global commons so that anyone could trade with anyone else. And that gave us global energy and global finance and global agriculture and the uh, multifaceted uh, manufacturing supply chains of the modern world. So everything is tied up in this now. But then let's fast forward to 1992 when the Cold War ended, and the United States decided, like everyone else, that history was over. And the wars of the future would not be between the Americans and the Soviets. It would be between the Americans and the holdouts, places like Iraq or Iran or North Korea that just refused to be part of this new grand order of things. And so we retooled our military instead of patrolling the global oceans, which were now safe forever. And we went to the supercarrier battle groups perfect tool if you want to hammer down a north korea not good if you want to patrol the entire pacific well 35 years later where we are now our military has completed that transition and we've it's lean it's mean and it's tough but it's concentrated on a very few battle platforms, 12 of them, the supercarriers, which means that when the Houthis a couple months ago started cooking off rockets against ships in the Red Sea, the United States no longer has that patrolling force. And here we have some of the most incompetent terrorists operating from some of the most worthless land on the planet, stressing global shipping to the breaking point. So I can't tell you what's going to break First, because the insurance policy, the patrol system that we used to have just isn't there anymore. And all it takes is one guy taking out one ship, and this all falls apart.
0: Because so, it spooks it spooks the global market because now those shipping lanes are no longer secure.
1: Right. And so if it happens in, say, Southeast Asia, that's global manufacturers because half of global manufacturing supply chain steps are shuttled on little containers, container vessels in the East Asian Rim. If it happens to the Persian Gulf, obviously, that's an energy problem. If it happens in the Black Sea, that would probably be agriculture. We're at a point now where everything is uniquely vulnerable and we have multiple mortal threats on different seas and different continents all of which are operating on their own logic and any one of them could be catastrophic.
0: Well, let's follow up on that because the U S Navy, I think is a really interesting point. And I like your idea about the, the, the carrier battle groups, because it is, I look at it and think, well, okay, are they really going to be able to resist a supersonic hypersonic drone, a suicide drone? I mean, I know they have lots of fancy kit on them, but the cost of one of those little bitty, bitty, you know, drones, I say little bitty, they're going to be big, but the relative cost of those to some, you know, a bad actor is minuscule compared to the cost of that carrier, right? And the yeah, loss, so, tears the of loss of face, the loss of face of the U.S. of losing a carrier to one of these things would be enormous. But it's a point I made with uh, Greg Easterbrook, who was on the podcast a while back, and he has a great book called The Blue Age about the U.S. Navy. It's a the subtitle is How the U.S. Navy Created Global Pro- Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. So you, but back to your point about the end of history. So we've just seen, we're fighting the last war here. What's your point about the U S Navy now?
1: Well, we haven't had strategic guidance from the white house when it comes to military structure since the Herbert Walker Bush administration. So we've been Mm -hmm. on coast, which makes it a little harder for the admirals and the generals to figure out, you know, what do we prepare for next? What does policy tell us? What does our political leadership tell us we need to be ready for. And it's just been crickets now for 35 years. So they ran with the last thing they understood. And we have those weapon systems now, and they're they're awesome by any measure, but they're probably not inappropriate, or they're probably deeply inappropriate for dealing with a deglobalizing world because the decision that was made back in the early '90s was that history was done, and it's just a matter of rubbing out a few rough spots, and we all get along now. And clearly, that's not the world we're in. And before you're too critical of the American Navy on that, the Europeans believed this was the world. World on the 18th of February in 2022. 48 hours before the russians poured into ukraine so it's not like it was just us right and we certainly never sublimated our entire economic system to this dream for us it was always about security and so while this is a inconvenience and maybe a little bit of an embarrassment for the u.s it's economic catastrophe for most of the rest of the world
0: so then well, to follow up on this, I'm, I'm just in my own head. I'm wondering when, when were the Barbary pirates, right? It was off the, it was a Tripoli, right? This is the whole, the U.S. Marine Corps hymn, right? it uh, a little while. Well, it's 200 years ago. So yeah. we're fighting, but we're back to an era really of what would be just kind of piracy, right? In terms of relative uh, I think piracy
1: to- and especially state piracy is going to be a very big part of the next 30 years.
0: And we have the wrong type of ships. We should have more smaller frigates. I don't know the term of art here. In if the, the goal
1: is to maintain global, global open waterways, we need at least two or three times as many ships, probably as many as 800 destroyers. And the supercarriers are not good for that. But that's got to be a choice. Uh, if the United States is deciding so a minute, that it's to not you know, interested so, in globalization, we probably have the perfect fleet.
0: So we have roughly, as our memory serves, about 300 ships total in the U.S. Navy right, right now. And, and you're saying most need... of
1: those are either the carriers or dedicated to protecting the carriers.
0: Right. Um, so you're saying that if we want to maintain this blue ocean Navy capable of preventing piracy, capable of of keeping the hoodies in check and the rest of it, that we need a, I think the correct term is shit ton more boats. Right. Metric
1: right? shit ton to be specific.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Let's use the SI units. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that we're going to need a whole lot more uh, ships of a different kind, of smaller, right. smaller, m- less expensive ships. Yeah, but that here's are the thing.
1: Of- Let's say we decide we want that. That's not for us the United States economy is not globalized. Only about 15% of our total trade is internationalized. About half of that is NAFTA. About half of the remainder is energy and agricultural exports. So really in terms of our total exposure to the wider world, we're only looking about four, maybe 3% of GDP is our total vulnerability. So if we decide we wanna keep the ocean safe for merchant shipping, it's not our merchant shipping. It's primarily China's. And so the idea that the United mm. States is going to engage in a multi-trillion dollar naval expansion in order to protect the economic strength of China, I'm sorry, that's a very strange sounding argument to me.
0: Well, and who's going to carry that message? If you if you explain it in that, that term, who's going to be the congressman that brings up that spending bill? Yeah, right? exactly. You know, and that's the
1: problem with defense uh, – doctrine right now is because we haven't had that update from the white house in so long the conversation no matter who is participating has really gone off the rails
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, because he was a CIA guy, right? He was an intelligence guy.
1: He was a lot of things. He was in the private sector. He was in the House of Representatives. He was VP. He was in the uh, CIA. And he was the last president that we had who kind of, how should we put this, um, did time in all the rooms in order to have a really deep understanding of how everything was put together. And as a result, he was was also
0: ambassador to China, too. Yes, and right. so
1: he understood how all the pieces fit together, where the strengths and where the vulnerabilities were. And so he was the perfect president for when the cold war ended to figure out what's next. And so of course we voted him out of office.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Um, let's go back. Let's stay on this international shipping issue because we were just talking about Europe and i had this teed up for that, that discussion. But uh, what do you make of, I have my own ideas about this. What do you make of the uh, Biden administration's freeze on LNG exports?
1: It's, purely political um think of it this way it took us 15 years of industrial expansion to get to the roughly 12 billion cubic feet of natural gas liquefaction export capacity that we have today there's roughly another 12 bcf under construction that will not fully enter operations within the next decade none of that is affected by this freeze what is affected is what happens after things that have not yet been permitted or approved at all right so if we build out currently what we've either started construction or already permitted you're still talking about the united states having more lng export capacity than any two countries on the planet combined right uh probably 3 maybe even 4 All this does is affect a theoretical expansion that wouldn't even break ground within the next several years. So this is something that he was able to do that didn't spook the existing LNG operators or the existing natural gas producers. And it thrilled his left-wing environmental supporters because they think it's the beginning of the end of the industry, which is absolutely not. It may prevent 15 years from now the industry from getting any bigger, but it'll still be far and away, the largest on the planet.
0: So why did he do it?
1: Because he got support from a wing of his politics that might have not showed up for the general election. Uh, he's managed to successfully short-circuit the primary process, so he's not going to be facing a candidate from the left, but you still want to make sure that the people vote up showed up to vote anyway.
0: So it was just a gift to the the radical left. And it's one that he
1: can undo in a day or a future president can undo in a day. And since, let's assume for the moment, as I do, that Biden's going to win this election handily, five years from now might be the right time to readdress this, and he doesn't have to worry about it. That will be someone else. So
0: let's talk about that. You made a kind of a just in passing note that Biden wins, and yeah, yeah. I've made clear. I've made I've made clear my view on it. I'm I'm going to vote for none of the above. All of the well, I don't know what I'm going to write my own name in because if it's my vote i can waste it on whoever i want i might as well put my i might vote for you peter
1: oh god no you don't you you take that back right now
0: okay all right i'll take it back (laughs) people ask me what would you do if you were appointed department of you know as energy secretary i'd fire myself on the first day i would would say no let's dissolve this department it doesn't do anything good it's we're wasting time here so well let's talk about that why do you think biden will win in a landslide what uh what give me and and well before i ask that do you think he's competent? And then, no, no, why do you think no? He but
1: neither's Trump, so that's not a fair question. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Now you're really <laughs> cheering me here, Zion. This is really fun. I'm so okay, glad we're talking.
1: Let me start with the caveats and then the explanation. So, caveat okay. number one: Biden has to not die after June first.
0: Okay. If
1: he dies after June 1st, the nomination process will be completed and Kamala Harris will then be the nominee from the Democratic Party. And that is a uh, rat hole of possibilities that I'm not going to get into. Second, Donald Trump has to not go to prison before June 1st, because if he goes to prison before the Republican convention, then they will have a chance to have a normal primary process and actually come up with a candidate who's competent. So if those two extreme situations, which are non-zero risks, don't happen, then it's going to be Trump versus Biden, and Biden will demolish Trump, and it will be the second or third greatest defeat for any political party in American history. Uh, The reasons now. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans in modern times have followed two different strategies. Uh, the Democrats go for numbers, so they have lots and lots of factions. But those factions often fight, and so any candidate who can't, who, who chooses to run on the issues, automatically spawns a policy fight among the factions. So, for example, gays and blacks have radically different concepts of what civil rights means, and so if they run on civil rights, the gays and blacks are like, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And however you answer that, you're going to piss someone off. And so they don't show up. The Republicans have fewer factions, but they don't fight because their issues don't cross. So national defense conservatives don't care about the business issues. Business voters don't care about social issues. They're all reliable voters. They all show up and policy fights don't happen. And so they tend to win the big elections. What Trump has done is he's introduced a Democrat-style internecine fight into the Republican coalition. And so we now have national security conservatives and uh, social conservatives at each other's throats, for example, because of the Tuberville stuff. And we have national security conservatives at clash with the populace over foreign policy. So no matter what happens, not all the Republicans are going to show up. And they already were at a voter discount versus the Democrats. So they lose right there.
0: Second. So if I'm going to read that back to you, what you're saying is that Biden hasn't split his his supporters and Trump has badly uh, Trump Alien, has alienated them
1: badly and Biden, even if he splits them a little bit, he still has the numbers.
0: But back to you said, of course, he's not competent. I mean, OK, so I'm not a partisan. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted, deeply disgusted. Right.
1: Like yeah. I, I relate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, but, I watch Biden, and I say this with no joy whatsoever. And it's clear I don't he doesn't know what day it is. I mean, you look, you see the look on his face, and I've been around elderly people. he's an he's an elderly man now, yeah, and he's not spry. So yeah. not only does he not have to die, you said that's a that's a it's not a low bar. it's a bar, right, mm-hmm. But does he also not have to make some catastrophically bad public performance? Right. Because because if you're you're a Republican, you're just waiting for him to fall down or confuse the Mexican with the Egyptians or, you know, whoever. Right. Because those make him look really, really bad in the eyes of voters. And 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 it seems that the polls show they don't they think he's too old. Yeah.
1: And if. Trump wins. He will be the oldest president we've ever had. Right. Right. So, I mean, the, the mental cognitive issue goes both ways. And anyone who's going to vote against one Ford is going to vote against the other one Ford, and it doesn't move the needle because they're functionally the same in that regard.
0: Well, then, who runs the country? So let's just on Trump because I, I think about this a lot, and not too much because it drives me crazy you know, the first time he says, oh, I only have the best people. Well, okay. So let's look back at the first administration. And they all quit
1: or were fired because they told him things he didn't want to hear, which is speaking truth to power is kind of an important job in the cabinet.
0: Right. No, that's, that's where I'm going here. So he hires his secretary of state, Lee Raymond, right? Or not Lee Raymond. uh, Oh, the former head of Exxon. Um, He was the other former head. I'm sorry?
1: Rex Tillerson.
0: Tillerson, right. Who's very competent, but then he he fires Tillerson and Tillerson With, didn't Without a
1: conversation yeah.
0: without a conversation. And so he all the people that he hired, he alienated and, and then virtually none of them are supporting him now. So the question is, we know Biden will keep the same people, right? It's going to be the John Podesta crowd and the rest of those. probably. But who's going to get who's going to agree to go to work for Trump now after they see what he did last time? And yeah, which no makes one me is competent no and that's a that's a very enormous concern to me course, right from a yes. simple simple governance standpoint so is that and well, I'm, I'm, I'm opining here, but so you think that the democratic machine is going to be enough to reelect Biden. And you said in a landslide, you think it's going to not be well, close. The
1: second thing has nothing to do with the Republicans or the Democrats. It's the Independents. Everyone seems okay. to have forgotten what happened in the midterm. I mean, with the exception of reconstruction, the party out of power has never not done well in the right. midterm elections until now, because. Uh, Donald Trump basically told the independents that the general election doesn't matter at all. It should all be about the primaries. That's where I dominate, and that's what should decide this. And since the um, general election is the only place where the independents matter, they basically said, hold my beer, and in many cases voted four to one against Republican candidates Mm. because of the way the electoral college works – The Republicans need about a two-to-one split between the independents voting for Republicans versus Democrats to capture a lot of states, especially the swing states. That includes Texas. And if they don't get that two-to-one, they lose them all. And we're now looking at the vast majority of independents going the other direction because Trump's position is still that the general election is not where this should be decided. Mm. So you're looking at a massive blowout, and the question is how far down the voter list, does this go? I have no idea on that question. But I can tell you that in terms of the general election, this is going to be, at best, a Goldwater-style blowout.
0: Wow. So you said there were three issues there. Did, I get, did we get to the third one or did we no, come to the it two on?
1: Those are the two big reasons why Trump doesn't have a chance. Yeah.
0: So what about, we haven't mentioned Kennedy, because as I look at Robert Kennedy Jr., Kennedy I think is, is
1: batshit crazy, and so he's going to split the batshit crazy vote, and the batshit crazy vote right now is going to Trump. So yeah, that's just a, a, a side reason why Trump will do badly.
0: Well, but is it there a possibility we have another Perot-style thing that elects Clinton again? We talked about it, George H.W. Bush before, and, yeah, and he it's, lost it's, largely because of Ross Perot, I would Kennedy's say. Kennedy's-
1: Kennedy's not on the left. Uh, most of his wacko ideas are on the right. So hmm. it's not going to draw a lot of support against uh, away from the Biden administration.
0: It's really, Even, even though you think uh, even the name Kennedy uh, attracting Democratic voters, you don't think that he's going to pull the Democratic uh, the, the voters the fun away thing from The about him. that
1: is that the Kennedy machine is already spending more on uh, campaigning against one of their own <laughs> than, the, than the RFK junior program is – spending on itself so yeah we've we've got the name kennedy basically pushing against robert jr
0: yeah that is interesting he's alienated his entire family so
1: the the guy's a complete nutbag
0: yeah nutbag is that a clinical psychological term is that i lived
1: in australia for a while it's very it's very specific
0: (laughs) okay let's talk china you were very bearish on china uh, when our when we talked last you've also oh my god
1: it's so much worse
0: (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, you said most recently now, this was just in the January, I think it was 27th uh, podcast on JP Morgan. You said the first country to face, you're talking about demographics. I'm quoting you here. The first major country to face national oblivion will probably probably be China. National oblivion? That's, yep. that's a strong, very strong uh, descriptor. So since I Ra- spoke with me you in 2020.
1: 2020- since I spoke with you in 2022, we've gotten a lot more clarity on some of the data. We now that know that the Chinese birth rate has been lower than the American birth rate since probably about 1995. Uh, and so when you have your birth rate that far below uh, repopulation numbers for 30 years, it's not that they're running out of children. That was in the 90s. They're now running out of people in their 40s and even early 50s and we're now looking at uh, the new data that's like just in the last two weeks is there might might this hasn't been confirmed so i'm not sure there might be half as many kids in kindergarten today as there was the day before covid hit and so
0: as many in just three years
1: yeah because the birth rate bomb that hit in the late 2010s has now reached the education stage Uh, And so we're just seeing a complete dissolution of the Han ethnicity here. And it's now reasonable to think about what a post-Han world will look like before the end of this century. But long, long before we have that, we'll have national dissolution from a lack of people.
0: Interesting. So is that – how much of that – excuse me, of this demographic bomb, this demographic oblivion that you're, I mean, because that's fundamentally what we're talking about here, right? The demographic issue. Is that what motivates Xi to do what he's done so far? The, you know, I still think, I think maybe we talked about it before, but that, that news clip of Hu Jintao being escorted out of the people's hall. I mean, it was an, I was an opera in a matter of a couple of minutes, right? You know, just the body language and how Hu Jintao is looking around like, you're kidding me! You're going to humiliate me in front of all these people, and 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 he goes over to G, Xi and Xi's like, "Yeah, go away." But I mean, it was just a the power politics there. So, what is motivating G? I guess would be the the short question.
1: Well, it's 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 hard to know because there's no one left to talk to. Um, he, he hasn't done what because Trump he's purged has done. every
0: he's purged everyone out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Trump surrounds himself with yes men, so he Trump insists that his inner circle lies to him. Uh-huh. But G has surrounded himself with silence. He doesn't want to hear from anyone, and so he's established himself as the sole arbiter and decision maker, but he's made it impossible for any information to get to him, and his inner circle aren't advisors. They're just silent men, so we have no idea what is motivating G right now except the voices in his head, and our electronic surveillance is not good enough to listen in on that.
0: So national oblivion. So if the if you're predicting this fall of China, the implications for the global economy are profound for oil demand, for natural gas demand, for coal, for CO2 emissions, for manufacturing base. Is this how does this play out then? How do you see this uh, this coming about? And then. Second, would Xi then just invade Taiwan to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, distract everybody from all these problems?
1: Well, let me start with the last one first. Sure. Um, I'm not going to be one of those people who is overly concerned and overly, you know, beating the war drums about a war with Taiwan or over Taiwan, because we just don't know. Right. Um, when Putin decided to invade Ukraine, he had an inner circle. So there were phones to tap, emails to hack into and so we found out the details of the plan very very early and shared them with the world there's nothing equivalent in china so he may have already decided the specific day two years from now on an idle tuesday that he's going to pull the trigger it's possible but he hasn't told anyone and because he's gutted the decision-making apparatus of the, of the state to such a huge degree i would argue that their military is functionally incompetent uh, much worse probably than what we have seen in russia because russia despite all of its flaws still has some information transmission the Chinese officially, at least, have a lot of training and some new gear, but they have no experience in a war, and they have no advice from their leadership as to what they're supposed to be doing. So it's entirely possible that if we do have a conflict, we're going to see a catastrophic failure of the Chinese system. It's only in the last couple of months we found out that their strategic missile force is nothing of the kind because all the money was stolen Russian style, and their liquid-fueled rockets, which are the ones that target our cities, were filled with water. So we don't have a good picture, but the bits and pieces that have been coming out in the last year indicate a broad scale incompetence throughout the entire governance system, and that includes the military. So that's kind of piece one. I'm not saying there can't be a war. I'm saying it's not obvious to me. And if they did it, it would mean their national destruction under a year, because this is a country that imports 80% of its energy and 80% of the stuff that allows it to grow its food. It would be national suicide. And five years ago, Jean knew that. But five years of having nothing but propaganda, I don't know what's going on in his head. Okay, so that's to the side. As to your bigger question, what does this all look so- like? So-
0: sorry, that's to the side. Yeah.
1: Well, it's just, it, it's unknowable. But <laughs> right, if he okay. pulled the trigger, the system doesn't look like it works very well anymore. Right. Okay. We need to prepare for a post-China world in every economic sector. That's pretty much obvious now because even if they weren't looking at government dissolution from incompetence and over centralization, we have the demographic issue, which means this is all terminal anyway. Uh, Demographics at best tell us that they've got 10 years left. It could be a lot less because of misgovernment. Uh, The place where it's easiest to explain what's going to happen is manufacturing because especially at the lower end of the value-added chain assembly and processing the Chinese dominate that space and we're going to have to put that industrial plant somewhere else and we're going to have to reimagine it because when you've got a billion Chinese workers or what's probably more accurately now 700 million Chinese workers um, you have one model and then when you're working with first world workers and very highly skilled Mexican workers you have a very different model so every manufacturing subsector to a degree is going to have to reimagine how it works with a different supply chain system in a different place with fewer steps that's not all bad because on the labor productivity level the mexicans and the americans long since passed the chinese Uh, It's been over a decade. Our energy is cheaper. Our infrastructure is closer to the end consumer, and we have a stronger consumer market in the first place. So it's not that it won't get better, it will get much better. It's just the process of building that out is something that takes years. And the sooner we start, the better shape we'll be in. And industrial construction spending in the United States has expanded by a factor of roughly eight in the last six years. Mm. We're on the right path. We just need more.
0: But that's going to be inflationary as well, right? Hugely, because of all the things. Hugely. Okay. So I want to come back to, well, okay. I'm going to ask you the $10,000 question, but first, what is this? So China, the collapse of China, you go to Walmart, Walmart's a China story. What is, what is the, what is the decline? does <laughs> the decline of, of China mean for Walmart? Uh,
1: let me give you an example of how things are probably going to go. Um, when COVID hit all the textile manufacturing in China and India stopped And what we discovered here is that in the 50 years since the technology had left the united states with nafta um, we had different options now and so instead of having a bunch of women in the appalachian states with sewing machines we had facilities that were largely automated that would take in raw cotton process it all the way to finished clothes and the end product would be cheaper per garment than what was happening in bangladesh Uh, we didn't know that because we hadn't tried and so what we're going to find out is all of these business models where the general approach has not really evolved, they've just moved to different locations because of cheaper labor. And when it comes back, it's going to look different. And predicting what that's going to be is hard, but we're not we we have the technological acumen to try it a different way. We just until we try, we don't know what it's going to look like. And so I would suspect that everything that's north of processing is going to look very very different. Uh, when it comes to automation, the United States can do assembly with automation in a way that no one else in the world can because we've got the technology for it. Right. But if you need fingers and eyes, you're going to be relying on people like Mexico or people like Colombia, uh, countries that we have free trade agreements with and broadly good political relations with Uh it's just it's going to be very, very different. Uh, the industry that I'm most concerned about is the one where a differentiated labor market is most appropriate because the people who do the wiring are not the people who do the injection molding are not the people who assemble the motherboards. That's electronics. I don't know what that's going to look like. But mm. if we just pick up that model from East Asia and drop it here, we don't have the workers. So it's going to have to look different. Not going to know until we try.
0: But you, but when we spoke last, and I know you've talked about this before, but you're very bullish on Mexico and the U.S. moving more or relying more heavily on trade with Mexico. Mexico could be one of the locations for that kind of labor you're talking about, no?
1: Uh, yes, but a couple things have to change. So most of the growth story of Texas and Mexico for the last 30 years has been NAFTA and roughly 40 to 50% of the growth that we have seen in both countries has been because of that trade relationship, Texas and Northern Mexico synergizing themselves, but it's just Northern Mexico. And so Northern Mexico, most of the labor is already spoken for. And so if we want to rely on Mexico, if Mexico wants to be part of this next phase of industrial build-out, it primarily needs to be Central Mexico. And that means we need a lot better infrastructure linking the U.S. border region with the Mexico City region. And the sooner we start on that, the better.
0: So that's roads, railroads, uh, uh, highway. Multimodal
1: rail is the most important aspect of that. We need at least two or three trunk lines that go the whole distance.
0: Gotcha. So you've talked about inflation a couple of times. And I'd like to ask this question when i just people who, you know, I run into people I'm acquainted with on the podcast as well so you're bullish on the U.S. I am as well. Um, but if I gave you 10, here's the question. If I gave you $10,000 and I might do it, it's unlikely, but I might, I name you my, fi- I name, I name you my fiduciary and I say, okay, Peter Zion, I want the best return on this $10,000 over the next, and you have to return it to me in 10 years. Where would you put it? Real gold, estate. gold, crypto, what?
1: No, uh, <laughs> real estate. We we have a housing shortage. The baby boomers uh, are a social generation. The millennials are a social generation, and they're starting child formation and family formation late. They're into it now, uh, so they're, the demand for that is huge. Even without inward migration, even without capital flight, and both of those are a very big part of the story too.
0: So land. Oh, so you're talking single family housing, multifamily housing. That, that's for two. Just, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Specifically you were, you, in the Texas Triangle or North Carolina.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Good. All right. Well, that's good. I that's one. Uh, I am I'm not a gold bug. I don't understand crypto still. I'm not smart There's enough nothing to understand. <laughs> do tell. What do you mean?
1: Oh no, let's not waste time with that topic. It's
0: pointless. Okay. Well, let's talk about the dollar then for a minute because in your talk with JP Morgan you talked about the issue uh, we talked about or you talked about uh the American dollar. You said the Euro the Euros functionally gone. the yuan yuan is not tradable and never will be. So here's the question. You don't believe America has a debt crisis?
1: I don't think it's acute. I mean, I'm a fiscal conservative, so I'm not really happy with where we are right now. But as long as there's no challenge to the US dollar at all, not even theoretically anymore, uh, the US can do things with its currency that other countries can't it's the whole exorbitant privilege thing and if all we do is expand the debt by our average growth rate of about three percent that means that the first 800 850 billion dollars of monetization every year is functionally free because it doesn't increase the relative debt level i mean it's a kind of a relative
0: debt relative debt level to to gdp GDP. okay
1: now this is not my preference But I'm not a baby boomer who thinks that they're entitled to everything or a millennial who thinks they shouldn't have to pay for their parents. So I'm an Xer who gets caught in between these things and can't functionally uh, affect the system because we don't have the numbers. So we're going to see more things like debt forgiveness for college students. We're going to see more things like um, doubling and tripling down and some bad decisions on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Uh, and as long as the baby boomers are with us, they will have the voting power to make sure that we never have a balanced budget.
0: Interesting. So even though we're spending now more on debt service over yeah. a, a, a trillion dollars a year, we're spending more on debt service than we are on defense – which has been the holy grail right oh we you know the, but we have we passed some sign. is that a significant marker to you i mean it sounds no, like it is
1: yes i mean this eventually will blow up i don't mean to suggest it won't but we have to go a really long way so for example look at japan uh, japan has been running primary deficits of 10 percent of gdp for 30 years i mean they only where we only recently got to with trump they've been there since the late 90s And their debt now, if you include pension arrears, is over 500% of GDP. But they're still there. And And ours is 130% of GDP?
0: 120 to
1: 130, somewhere in there, yeah. So we need to quadruple what we do before we get to a Japan-style situation, and that's before you consider that we're the global currency. So I'm not saying there's not an opportunity cost here. The opportunity cost is substantial. And I'm not saying we wouldn't be in a better shape if we could get our books right. But you have to push this a long way before it breaks.
0: So when it's this, a lot of this uh, debt deficit spending is 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 fueling the industrial expansion here because of the Inflation Reduction Act, all these yeah. uh, government largesse tax credits. There are credit a thousand
1: things that I could nitpick that I don't like and the general ideological view of the state being involved in that and all. But since we need to double the size of the industrial plant to prepare for a post-China system- I'm being pretty forgiving because even if we build the wrong thing in the wrong place, it can always be repurposed.
0: So let me ask you we've we've talked about a lot of things and I produce a fair amount of content myself, you know, whether it's the podcast or substack or giving speeches and well well let me ask you. I think in Savannah we ran into each other in Savannah, Georgia at the CFC meeting. I think you told me you did two hundred engagements in twenty twenty three, is that right? It
1: was about that. Yeah, that's not happening again. That was too much. It was twenty twenty two. 2023 was much calmer
0: <laughs> gotcha so how many engagements do you think you'll do this year or do you uh, have
1: capping a- it at 60 this year because I need to get my life back
0: uh-huh right well yeah I'm I'm okay I've got 21 on my schedule so far right so but uh I'm I'm not capping it yet but uh you're conversant in a, a, a very wide array of issues and I asked you this before and you dodged the question but do you have a photographic memory?
1: I've got a very good memory. I wouldn't call it photographic. I'd also say that I'm full. So I'm at the point now where if new (laughs) stuff comes in, I've got to make room for it somewhere.
0: Well, So how do you keep, uh, so did you know uh, these are personal issues, but they're one uh, personal questions, I guess, but it's something about you've had remarkable success. Let's be clear, right? You know, you must look at yourself sometimes and say, damn. And because I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're making a good living, right? Given that we're doing all right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not, you're not holding a cup on the, on the street corner. But have you known when you were a kid? I know you grew up in Missouri, but did you? Iowa. Oh, Iowa. Forgive me. You went to Missouri. school. Mm. You went to school. You went to the university in Missouri. What was that this? That's true. Southwest Missouri State. No, Northeast. Northeast Truman, Missouri now. State. Yeah. Okay. Did you know this when you were a kid that you had this intellectual capacity?
1: Uh, I mean, I always knew I was clever and I always knew that I could hold different thoughts in my head. And my thought when I went into college, what I, I was going to where my thought when I went into college is that I was going to be. Pre law and pre med organic chemistry, I was thinking of going into patent law. I figured I could patent like the next Velcro and be done obviously didn't go that way. Uh, And it wasn't until about 12 years ago that I realized that I could do what I'm doing now. Um, At my old job, I was the only real generalist they had. So I was always drawing connections among different things. But I really didn't like being in front of crowds and the rest of the analytical staff really didn't much care for me because I kept getting Middle East studies and their energy studies and vice versa. Um, But when I left that job and clients approached me about following me I was like, huh, maybe this is marketable. And the speaking circuit proved to be the right matrix for me over time. And 12 years later, I'm doing this.
0: So that was when you were, so it was at Stratfor when you realized right. that you had the ability to go out on your own. And so when I
1: left Stratfor in a, to be perfectly blunt, a hissy fit that I realized that this actually could work.
0: And so now you're making, well, you've written now four books, your latest, uh, which I haven't plugged, and I haven't plugged a station break now here, we're already 50 some odd minutes or an hour into this, uh, Zion.com to find out all things Peter Zion. Uh, You're the author of The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Um, But I want to just follow up on this. So you have this capacity to synthesize staggering quantities of information and make that, and then. I'm going to use the word regurgitate you you synthesize <laughs> and I prefer met- the
1: term gist
0: fair, <laughs> fair enough, a gister, right? you called yourself a gister. you're giving the gist of what's going on, but that synthesis that capability of synthesizing all of this it's a true it's a gift i mean do you do you know where it came from or how it, how it, it's something that you've had all your life?
1: uh the country's first commercial meth house was next door to my grade school. Piano teacher, so I was on the escape from Iowa program from a very young age, and I figured (laughs) out that that wasn't going to happen for me playing basketball because I'm a klutz. So academia was the approach, Uh, and so I tried to be good at everything.
0: And so, well, now you you have this recall for all of this information. Where do you get it? Where where what are what do you read? Who what are the sources that you're tracking? Because given the amount of number of presentations you're giving, the amount of travel you're doing. I'm assuming you're fairly pressed for time. Where do you get all the info that you're taking in to remember it's actually to remember Japan's s- debt to GDP ratio. That is not something that is my, that came to me <laughs> I could maybe recall it but I'd have to study it. But where do you it's, get it's your It's actually
1: info? pretty straightforward. So every time I get a new client, I have to learn the world from their point of view. Yeah. And so I've got a research staff, and we do that for every single client. And you do that for enough clients, and you get a really good picture of how it all fits together. And to be perfectly blunt, that made the most recent book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, relatively simple to write, because the research work for most of it had been done as a course of our other work over the previous decade. Right. And so So, what we do now, especially for repeat clients, is really just kind of updating and then diving into a few questions here and there, which adds a depth that we didn't have before and makes it even better.
0: So how many people on your team? About a half dozen. And I asked you this question before, but I'm going to ask it again. The End of the World, it's a remarkable book. Did you dictate the whole thing?
1: Dictate? No, no. But um, in terms of start to finish from a writing point of view, it only took about a year.
0: Because when I read it, you don't quote many other people, right? There are very few. If I remember, I don't see any quote marks in there. You don't, and you don't have very a sure. lot of reference. It's your reference or footnotes. I live and die by footnotes. So I mean, it's just how, you know, something I'm kind of weird about. But, uh, but that's not how you wrote that. It was as though you're, here's my view on the world. Boom. And it was a kind of, I read it as your brain dump. And I don't mean, again, that be any. No, way- that's,
1: I think you're broadly right. Uh- if we had done footnotes, the footnotes would – in like a, a normal journalistic style approach to that, right. we would have had over 7,000 pages
0: yeah, of, right, yeah. of
1: just citations because, you know, if – for this, like for example, the CVC uh, event that I did, uh, you know, that was drawing from a dozen different databases in all fifty states in order to build an understanding of the electrical electrical system, which was summed up in the book in less than a paragraph. Right. So that paragraph would have had over a hundred references, and that would have been true for aluminum and for semiconductors and for oil processing as well. So it's just not feasible. So at the end, we tried to list out all of the databases. Uh, in a broad sense, right. that were most, vulnerable or most useful to us. But there is no way we could have done it academic style.
0: Right. Um, well, it's, I'm okay with that. Believe me, it's not academic style. So we just a couple more questions, because I know we've been going for an hour. I want to respect your time. But I want to challenge you here, because in your uh, recent JP Morgan interview, you said you were talking about uh, energy and electricity. And you specifically said the smart play would be to take technologies we have today and where they work. And then you said, put wind turbines in the Great Plains and solar in the Southwest and then run HV lines from those production zones into this big cities. So this is some work I've just done on transmission line build out. And we're not building transmission lines in any great quantity. Um, And I'm also a a, a longtime critic and observer, really, of the build out of wind and solar, which are facing enormous resistance from rural America, from Maine to Hawaii. Why are you so bullish on those intermittent sources of generation?
1: two things Uh, number one in the places where they work they work great and that's the great plains in the southwest those are places where wind can actually already provide a degree of base load and the amount of electrons that you get out of it for the amount of dollars you put into it is huge wind is about three times as good as solar but if you're in solar and you're in the vicinity of say LA where the population center is right there great if you're in the vicinity of Phoenix great You move outside of those zones. I changed my mind very violently. Uh, Most green tech in most places is not only an economic fail case, it's an environmental fail case. So putting um, solar panels, for example, in Toronto is among the dumbest things that humans have ever done. And on a per capita basis, the densest solar penetration in the country isn't in the southwest. It's in freaking Vermont, which is monumentally stupid. Uh, But in the right places, it works. And if we're going to double the size of the industrial plant, I keep coming back to that. If we still want manufactured goods in the world we're coming into, we need bare minimum 50% more electricity by the end of this decade. Solar and wind can be part of that in the right places and if we can't fix the transmission issue because of the different grids and the way federal regulation works and the way local opposition works then the solution is to build these things relatively close to population sensors centers instead of having long-range transmission have short-range transmission and that is the model we're following right now it is not the most efficient use of our money but it's a lot better than just building wind turbines in places where the wind doesn't blow
0: So fully agreed there. Um, But let me just so you said 50 percent more electricity overall in the U.S. We're at about 4000 terawatt hours now for petawatt hours. You're saying we're going to need another 2000 terawatt hours just for industrial demand by the end of the decade. You're talking about the next five years. That is an enormous, enormous increase, which I got to tell you, actually, electricity demand in the U.S. fell by about one percent last year. Now, it's been trending up very, very slightly, but. I, okay, well, let me ask you the question. Handicap that. Uh, I'm I'm very skeptical, but then I'm a journalist. This is how that that we will come anywhere close to that amount of increase, whether it's AI, crypto, AI demands. I, I'm very skeptical that we'll be able to build out the amount of power needed for AI. How how how, how uh, assured are you, or what odds would you give me that we actually build the capacity to add another two thousand terawatts of capacity or generation? Uh, Capability.
1: Well, it's an issue of 2000 terawatt
0: hours, forgive me.
1: Yeah, it's an issue of where and what. So, for the what, moving things for manufacturing takes more electrons than moving data. So, we've been moving into the direction of a services economy for the last 30 years. That's why we've been getting more efficient uh it's not that we've gotten better at husbanding our electricity it's just our economy has evolved in a direction that uses less of it that is now reversing very starkly and that's going to be about 25 uh that's going to necessitate probably a 25 percent build out all by itself and then the second is processing right now most of the processing happens in China and whether it's steel forging or aluminum forging or lithium whatever it happens to be it's very very power intensive and if it isn't going to be done in China it has to be done probably in the Gulf Coast so the zones we're going to see the biggest build out are the places that culturally and geographically are best able to reposition us as the globalization really bites that's the Texas triangle that's Arizona that's the front range that's the Gulf Coast and the South and those are places where it's easier to build yeah electricity generation as well so the country as a whole needs to double that industrial plant but it's not going to be spread evenly
0: yeah no, I, I agree with you. The the Interestingly enough, quick, quick fact, the growth of electricity demand in North Dakota on a percentage basis has been greater than any other state. Uh, Texas is a distant second. but
1: And that's because ex- they've been getting into agriculture and energy processing because they realize that if they're just exporting raw commodities, they're missing a lot of the money on the, that's being left on the table.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of that's due to just the pumping uh, load in the Bakken shale as well, but that's my conjecture. Most there, of that is, in-
1: there is some of that, but the percentage increases does not justify the electrical buildout.
0: Yeah. Um, So just a couple more questions. Um, So we talked about your, 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 your information intake and your near photographic memory. You don't, don't claim to have that, but whose work do you admire? There are a lot of people who are in the geopolitical, geostrategic business of, of analyzing the world and talking about it and, and gisting to use your line or your word. Whose work do you admire in this area?
1: Uh, let me give you two. One is kind of a hero. That's Robert Gates. last in government uh, in a serious way during the Herbert Walker Bush administration to help manage the the fall of the Cold War, Uh, and then in several administrations since. Robert Robert Gates, former
0: CIA director
1: among other things. Yes. He's had a lot of hats over the years. Um, He is one of the people who was pushing for us to have an open, honest national conversation about what we want out of the world. Uh, And in doing so, he has helped educate a whole generation of business leaders to have their eyes open. Uh, And without him... What passes for awareness of international affairs in the United States probably would not exist. Mm. Uh, the other one would be Ian Brummer of the Eurasia Group. He and I see the world through a relatively similar lens, but we approach our business worlds from opposite ends. He's been primarily focused on the connections to high-level governments to figure out what governments are going to do in the short term, whereas I'm more focused on things like demogra- demographics to show what has to happen in the longer term. So we dovetail fairly nicely.
0: Right. Right. Well, it's interesting you bring, I've had Bremer on the podcast. I think I was, uh, his latest book. I had him on shortly after that, but yeah, I would think he would be, in fact, I would, now that you say it, he would be a peer. In fact, he's about your age, right? About a uh, similar age, but, uh, he's some, way smarter, some, <laughs> but not as tall. So very, not as tall. <laughs> okay. So what are you reading now? We've, we've talked about your time constraints. What, uh, what books hey, are on your shelf or on your top of your Robert, list? I
1: gotta go. I've got another interview yeah. in four minutes. Okay.
0: No problem. Uh, Then last question then, what gives you hope?
1: Oh, we're going to get through this. This is not the first transition economically the world has faced, Technologically, the world has faced. And this is not the first time the United States political system has been scrambled as it goes through its own transition. It's just that for the next five years, we've got our political system largely offline. At the same time, we have to go through the biggest investment that we have ever seen. Uh, that will be confusing and infl- inflationary in equal measures, but we will get through it. And on the backside, we'll have a system that is reconfigured for the new era economically and politically. Uh, we've done this before. We can do it again.
0: It's a good place to stop then. My guest has been Peter Zion for in his second appearance on the Power Hungry podcast. Peter, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Uh, for more on Peter, go to zion.com. And until next time, we'll see you on the next episode of the Power Hungry podcast. Until then, see ya.